Pride Institute is an LGBTQ-specific treatment center for substance use disorder and addiction. Pride was first opened in 1986 as a direct response to the HIV-AIDS pandemic. We provide care to adults 18-plus in residential and outpatient settings. I'm Luke. And I'm Kaylee. And together, we are the co-hosts of the Proud Voices podcast for Pride Institute. Uh, Initially, it was 2005. 2004, I met what I thought at that time was the love of my life. And the love of his life was crystal meth. And I never understood why it needed to be more important than me. So we argued for a few months about me trying it. And it feels weird to say I won that argument. But I finally wore him down. and. He's like, okay, you can snort. I'm like, no, I'm going to do it the same way you do it. Now, he'd been doing it for 10 years and was an IV user. So the very first time I used it, it was off and running. That was September of 2014. And by May of 2015, I had gone through my retirement fund a convertible and was almost being fired from my job. He, in January, came up here to Pride. And that was kind of an insult to injury, but it's like, what? You teach me this and then you leave. Um, and so I didn't want to come up here. So at that time, there were multiple Prides. So I went to Pride in Dallas and was there for 30 days. And went back to Indiana and literally for the next 10 years, I stayed clean. I didn't really practice the program, but I was off of math. During that time frame, my life was good. Um, I got to do, got into some charity work. I went back to school. I took care of my mom. I had a promising job in the lodging industry. And I don't know if partner is the right word. Boyfriend isn't. So whatever he was and I, we kind of kept going. In 2009, he died of an overdose. So he had not had the luck that I had. Two years later, my mom passed away. And then... Three years after that, my best friend killed himself. And I was done. Um, and so I thought that would be the way to go out. Because they always said, if, you're, if you quit drugs for a long time and you start again, and you started, you know, uh, yeah. And so I thought, okay, I'll just do one really big injection and it didn't work and I was back to the races and that was in June. And I think I was back to pride this time in Minneapolis, November of that year. Um, I literally lost everything that time, including my job and just less than six months. And so I came up here and it was like, okay, I'm going to get 
clean and go home. And I did 29, yeah, whatever the standard time is, was home in time for Christmas. It really worked. I mean, I started trying to do meetings and stuff. I kept meetings going, but I just, I didn't have a community there. And every place I looked was someplace I had used or someplace I had been after using. And realistically, I want to say I stayed clean maybe a year. And then I thought I could manage it. And it went south again. And I got, I I had a new job. It was really good. And I had been doing really well. And I thought I was being called in to get promotion. And they were like, so we need to talk to you about these issues. What's going on? And they literally were getting ready to fire me. And I, at that point, I came clean about having had a relapse. And they did not fire me. They let me keep my health insurance and put me on medical leave. And I started the process to come back up here. Um, It was the next week before I could leave was a involved to stay in a psych ward, fights with my family, um, losing 90% of my friends. It, it literally, it was bottom. And so I came back. And the original plan, again, was to come for however long I could stay and then go home. And then I quit my job while I was up here. And because I quit in the state of Indiana, because I quit for medical reasons, I got unemployment. And so that allowed me to go into a sober house. And the original idea was, I'll do three months. So I went through Pride, um, got out, went to a outpatient treatment that I was going to five days a week, half days, and was really able to focus on building my life again. So I, I moved into a sober house and went to that outpatient treatment for another 10 months. And at one point, it's like I, I got a small job, and I kept extending the time I was going to stay up here by three-month periods. Uh, then I got the job that I have now, and everything fell into place. Um, I was able, you know, I got, got a job. I got an apartment. Um, I was able to get my dog back from Indiana, which that was the big fight before I came up here was they were like, you know, we're going to adopt your dogs out. I'm like, I'm not going to treatment if I can't keep my dogs. Which looking back at it, that's, you know, I still don't regret that. Um, I'm glad we were able to find a place. And so one of them got to come back and live with me. So yeah, it was kind of, you know, I, I think the reason it's taken this time is because I didn't go back to Indiana and the only people I knew up here were people I had met through recovery. And I wasn't ashamed of anything I'd done up here. So I really got to start fresh life. And so, yeah, that's the nutshell of how I got to cry. John, uh, you talk, you talked a little bit at the beginning about, 
you know, the loss of your partner and then, you know, mother, friend. Can you talk a little bit about experiencing grief in sobriety? And can you talk a little bit about the cravings that might be abnormally high during a period of grief? I felt it. I've never really been a person who likes to feel feelings. Um, there were some things that happened in when I was younger that just kind of helped me shut down or taught me to shut down emotionally. And it was really hard when you're not using and you're grieving, there is nothing to deaden it. You feel it. And it just, I, the, what I wanted to do was not feel. And so I think at one point my doctor had allowed me to take Ativan. But he's like, he knew my history. He's like, you only get 10 and I will never renew this. And that was right after my mom passed away because I, she was my like best friend. And, you know, all those things that gay men say about their moms are true. Um, and so, um, you know, it, I, I think at one point, and I will be honest, I had 10 years clean, but I had started drinking again. So I was always like of the thought I was a meth addict. So alcohol didn't play into it. Uh, but grief for me was probably a lot. I just never got to recover from that. And I think I deadened it enough and I threw myself into work and I just wouldn't deal with it. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, I think we all obviously experience grief and no one wants to feel that. And so we all have our own coping mechanisms for dealing with that. And it's important to know there are other ways to cope with grief other than using. Um, how do you cope with grief today? Um, well, let's, I mentioned earlier I had dogs. Um, they went into foster care and this is going into grief. Um, when I had been up here for six months, my oldest dachshund, who was 16 at the time, it was time for him to go. And I got to go home and be present for him. And I stayed in touch with my community up here. And I called into my outpatient group. And I went, we did the right thing for him. And that night I went to a meeting. And I... It's the meeting I used to go to when I had lived in Indiana before. And I went to that meeting and I kind of shared what was going on. And then I was like, oh, by the way, and I have six months today, which, you know, I think I learned that you don't have to keep it all inside. And, you know, meetings are a good part of it. Um, I have friends that I actually can trust to talk to things like that about. and. I found an incredible therapist. Um, first time I was in Pride up here in 2015, he was actually my counselor. And then by the time I came back, he had gone into private practice. And so therapy along with recovery really has given me a lot of tools. So I, I think that's the way I did it. I just, you know, it's like, okay, this sucks. <laughs> Um, but 
let's just not, you know, let's just not sit on it. And I, I kind of, face, I want to say I face it head on now. Yeah. John, you are one of like the lightest people I know. And what I mean by that is I feel like you just know how to have fun and you know how to have fun sober. Has that always been the case or what has your journey been with that? That actually has not been the case. Um, I grew up in small town, Indiana, and I was the fat gay kid that was treated only as fat gay kids can be treated in really uber Christian states. So I never had a lot of fun. I never had a lot of friends. And so, and I never had a lot of confidence. And no matter what I would try, I always felt I was failing. But since I've gotten clean, it's okay to fail. It's okay to understand that not everybody has to like me. I don't always have to be on stage and it's okay to be myself. And cause there used to be the me I would put on in public and who could just handle everything. And the me who was at home being miserable because, you know, everything wasn't the way I thought it should be. And I think I've just learned how to breathe as myself. And I always, I grew up, way before even the thought of gay marriage. And the one role model I had was a, an uncle of mine who was gay and alcoholic and not the best person. And I never wanted to be him. And I never thought that I would have somebody who loved me. And that's what I wanted. And I think it wasn't until after a whole lot of things changed politically or that, uh, it, that I thought it could be a possibility. And then, you know, but I did realize before anybody else could love me, I had to love myself. And that's what I think I've learned, what I learned at the beginning of being uh, this time in sobriety is that, you know, not everybody's going to like me, but the important thing is that I do. And if I can go to bed at night and think, okay, I, I was a good person today. Then that makes it a lot easier than beating myself up for everything I've done all the way through my life. I relate to what you just said, like on such a deep level, because, and I think a lot of queer people do, because like even today, like as an adult, like if I walk into a room, I immediately search for who the cool kids are. And that could be any room. That could be like a bar. That could be a pool. That is, it could also be like a meeting room. I search for the cool kids and I try to figure out a way to become one of them or to get them to like, because inherently growing up, I felt like I wasn't worthy of being liked just simply because I was gay. Um, and I think a lot of people experience that. And also you touched on it really beautifully, which is like, if you are in your head in that way in pretty much life, you're not going to experience joy. And it really does boil down to the fact of self-love. And I think that that's something also take queerness out of it. I think that that's something that's hugely important for people in recovery. What are ways that people in early recovery who are, you know, obviously depressed, who are full of shame, full of stigma, what helped you get past that to be able to find joy? Therapy. 
lots and lots of therapy. At one point, I literally had two therapists because with math comes sex. And I had to learn how to separate those two things. And then there was the emotional trauma of growing up with a pedophile uncle. And those things, it took a lot of therapy. Um, you know, the 12 steps help, um, but finding somebody who can guide, you know, who guided me through those issues in a safe way that I could go as far as I wanted to go. And then we could stop and I could back up and then we could go on and, and, and get through it. So, you know, I, I think that that was a big part for me was committing to my, my mental health or behavioral health or whatever the term is now to heal some of the trauma so I could get on away from it. And fast forwarding, what are you excited about today in your life? What are the things that give you joy that make you happy? I got married six months ago. Congratulations. <laughs> um, I, there's so much in my life that gives me joy. I have my, my, my dog Peyton is with me. Um, but when I came up here, I started actively wanting to have a life and do things that I had seen my parents do. So I became active in a couple of charity groups, one of them being the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. And that's actually how I met my now husband. Um, I was his mentor. I failed at that miserably. But, um, you know, we, we have a great life. And we did a ridiculously themed wedding. Um, and then we went to Disney and built lightsabers for our honeymoon. And I get to be a kid. I never got to be a kid growing up. And now I do. And I get to help people. I get to see a need and figure out what I can do about it. And that's, it's a life I never dreamed I'd have. Even when I came up here over four and a half years ago, all I wanted was for things to stop. I didn't know that I was getting everything I'd always wanted. Just doing yard work with my husband, traveling uh, the summer is pride. So the sisters and we'll be going to a lot of pride, going home to Indiana for my birthday and not fighting with my family while I'm there. That's joy. It's unbelievable. The life I get to lead right now. And it, like I said, I never dreamed I'd have it. I get the goosebumps. <laughs> That's incredible because you've touched on a couple different things. You've touched on trauma from your very early you know, days. Um, we talked a lot about being um, younger, um, therapy. What would you tell, you know, like 10-year-old you um, with the knowledge that you have now? First, I would tell me to stay away from frozen pizza because, yeah, that's what I found a lot of solace in. But I, I think I would tell me that you're going to go through a lot. And there are going to be times that you just don't want to go through anymore. And as trite as it sounds, the life I have today, the life you will have is 
only what you have because you go through everything you went through. So make your bad decisions, eat your feelings, but believe in yourself more. And when you get through it all, you will be who you are meant to be. Because I, I could, I would not be the person I am. You know, I hear people say, well, I wish I'd never done it, you know? And yeah, I guess I do wish I had never done it. But when I look back at that life that brought me here, I wouldn't change anything now that I've reached this spot because I wouldn't be who I am. I wouldn't be able to love the way I do. I wouldn't have ever met Mark. I wouldn't have all these wonderful things if I hadn't had to work through everything I went through. So I think I would just tell me to hold on and wait for the reveal. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. And also, I just realized I totally stole that question from RuPaul's Drag Race. So my bad. Don't, <laughs> don't sue us, Drag Race. John, thank you so much for being here today. We really appreciate you coming and sharing um, your experience of hope and joy. Thank yeah, thanks, John. And listeners, be on the lookout for the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence. They are terrifying, but they are the kindest, sweetest people in the world. <laughs> That's our goal. <laughs> Thank you for joining us on this episode of Proud Voices. You can find us where you find all your favorite podcasts. Don't forget to follow and subscribe. And we'll see you next time.